All right, if you've got your Romans journal, you're going to need that and a pen, and you're going to need to get ready to write. And uh, we have a, a baby dedication, child dedication at the end of uh, this uh, preaching service, so I need to be a little bit brief with my remarks this morning. So I'm going to give you several things to write in your notes, and then you can go back and read Romans 8 uh, with the, the devotion that Pastor David's put out on the website again. And it'll just make lots of sense as you go down through there once you see how the scripture is broken out in Romans chapter 8. Let me start with a bit of a personal testimony. I'd like to think, here we are on Father's Day, I'd like to think there were times when I pleased my father. He was not an easy man to please. I don't know if anybody's lived my life, uh, but uh, my father was not a very easy man to please. Uh, He was a perfectionist, and that brings a lot of tension, you know, uh, very high a very high bar. Uh, one of the things I've learned from that is that in parenting, it's okay to set a very high bar. And uh, he set a, set a very high bar. And I'd like to think that I, I, there were times when I pleased him and mom. Maybe before mom dies, she could let me know if I did ever along the way. And uh, uh, I, I'm sure there's got to be one or two things there in, in those years. Uh, but let me, let me give you the full story. I know there were times when I dishonored my family name because of my behavior. Those stand out a little more clearly to me for some reason in my mind as I look back than my accomplishments do. I see see my failures very clearly. And I, I know that I've not always lived up to the godly example of my father and mother. And I've not always, if I can say it this way to you this morning, lived up to my family name. But as I developed and as I... As I grew up and I grew as a, as a follower of Christ and grew, grew to be a man, the one thing I've noticed that's remained consistent throughout all of my ups and all of my downs and all of my wins pleasing my parents and all of my disappointments and failures displeasing and dishonoring my parents, the one thing that remained the same is that I realized for all of these years I've belonged to a family. That never changed. Whether it was good or whether it was bad... I've always belonged to a family. I was always loved by a family. I always had a place that I belonged in my family. We had a relationship, and that relationship remained steadfast regardless of behaviors. Now, it's not easy. Looking back now as a parent, I realize that that's not always easy. To love unconditionally, even when expectations are not met. Now, I'm addressing each of you this morning, obviously, as God's children. Let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. Are you living up to your family name? If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? Boy, every hand would go up. That means you call yourself by the name of Jesus Christ. You've identified with Christ in your faith. Remember last week we talked about in our union with Christ, you identified with him in baptism, and and he gave three wonderful examples of how it looks, what it's like to be in union with Christ. To, To call yourself a Christian is to acknowledge to yourself, to God, and to the world that I belong to a very special family. I belong to the family of God, and and I, I take that as an honor. I take that as a privilege and I respect that I have a family name and I need to honor my family name. But if you would be honest, and I won't ask you to give your testimony, but if you would be honest, you could probably say, Pastor, like you, I've had some ups and I've had some downs. I've had some things where I know uh, my behavior was pleasing to the Father. And I know there's some things in my life where my behavior was not pleasing to the Father. But let me ask you, have you also experienced that God has been with you through it all? Have you also experienced the Spirit of God coming and and present in in your life to strengthen you through temptations and through trials? The Holy Spirit there rising in strength within you when you knew you were weak and you knew you couldn't do it in your own power, but there was that reliable powerful presence of God working through your heart and working in your life to help you overcome those temptations and that adversity. Have you also experienced the love and grace of God as he deals with you very patiently? 
very patiently. Some of you are going to be late bloomers. God's still waiting patiently, patiently for you to engage in what the real Christian life is about, not just being born again, but following through this maturing process of discipleship to go out then and reproduce spiritual fruit that remains reproducing yourself. Obviously, we're talking about children a little bit this morning and and family context this morning and raising your children up in, in Christianity and exposing them to Christ so that they can early become followers of Christ. That's one of the greatest privileges, one of the best things you can do for your children. I just want to, it's not in my notes, and I'm going to digress with the parenthesis right here. The reason that God gave children parents is because children aren't old enough to make their own decisions. So the greatest mistake you can make in parenting is to say, well, I just believe in letting my kids make their own decisions and find in their own way. Are you crazy? I mean... With respect, seriously, hand them the car keys then. Let them decide if they want to drive at 10 years old. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you wouldn't do that in any other aspect of human life. Certainly, the most important aspect of human life, your spiritual life, your relationship with God, give them every advantage to know Christ. Give them every opportunity to fall in love and and experience the grace of God in their lives. That is what Christian parenting really is all about. Let me ask it a different way. Has any adopted child of God here been disinherited because of your failures? (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? And you know why the Bible uses this idea of adoption when it talks about those of you who've been born again? Because the laws of adoption are stronger than the laws of natural birth. In the culture in which this was written, if you adopted a child, you could not disinherit an adopted child. It was fixed. You might get mad at your own natural born kids and say, you're out of the wheel, sorry. But if you were an adopted child in this context, you could never be stricken from the inheritance or from the family. It was permanent. How cool is that? So... For the born again this morning, sure you have ups and downs, but here's what you've experienced through it all. You've been a part of a family. The presence of God has been with you the whole way. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You've never been disinherited, even if your behavior did not match up to your family name. And we know that because Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 tell us that the gospel brought about, because of our faith in Christ, a union with Jesus Christ. He illustrates the union three ways from chapter 6 into chapter number 7. And then in chapter number 7, he goes on a personal testimony expose. I gave it to you last week. Where the Apostle Paul begins to tell you what the real Christian life is really like. In other words, you can, you can read some modern books or watch some TV maybe this afternoon with some, some preaching going on. And they'll lead you to believe that the Christian life, once you're born again, man, you never have another struggle. You never have a, a sin. You, 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 the bank account's full. You're never going to get sick. And it's God's will for, for you to never, ever, ever suffer. The only problem with that theology is it's not Bible. It's great for selling books. Okay. And it's great maybe for filling a a room. I don't know. But it's just not Bible. And Paul really blows that up in in, in Romans chapter number 7. And again in chapter number 8. And really chapter 7 becomes the defining point. For those of you who are in Bible college, we have a lot of uh, 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 theologically trained people in the room. Chapter 7 really is one of the pivotal chapters in the book of Romans. Many of the great theologians said, if you handed me a new commentary on the book of Romans and you wanted me to recommend it, I would immediately turn to Romans 7 and see what you say. And if you build a straw man, I'm going to throw it in the trash. But if you say that's the Apostle Paul, then I'm going to read it and see what you have to say. So let me just put these words on the screen, and I think we'll all understand in our own way. So you got it wrong, now make it right. And let me explain. Some of the great theologians of history, I use Augustine this morning. Augustine said, uh, for all, most of his life, he said, Romans chapter 7 is not written about the mature uh, Apostle Paul. It's written about the unsaved, Saul of Tarsus. It's written about 
maybe Israel. It's written about the fallen world, but it cannot be written about Paul as a mature Christian and as a Christian apostle saying and describing so clearly how he's struggling against sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We talked about it last week. I just want to say this to you. If you're growing spiritually, your viewpoints will change as you grow. If you're growing spiritually, some of the things you swore were true, later you'll figure out you had the wrong position on. Is that fair? As your pastor, I've had to come out here on several occasions in the last 20-something years. And I've had to stand right here and say, guys, I'm sorry. Uh, I've changed my position on something. And I've gone to great lengths when I've had to do that to explain to you why I've changed my position on something. In the month of September, I'm going to preach again a series of sermons about the role of women in modern ministry. Please be here for that series if you tune out for the rest of the year. I have changed my opinion. I did it several years ago, but I want to be sure you understand where we are. It's one of the biggest single issues facing the Baptists in America today and the non-denominationals, the evangelicals today. Deal with that in the month of September. Part of that deals with Romans chapter 16. So I will not preach in this series, Romans 16. I'll save it until we get to, to the month of September. But let me just finish my argument with Augustine. Augustine wrote this. In the beginning, I certainly did not want this passage applied personally to the apostle who was already spiritual, but rather to someone living under the law and not yet under grace. So I argued that the passage describes a man still under the law, not yet living under grace, who wishes to do good, but is overcome by the lust of the flesh and instead does evil. As Augustine got older, he wrote a book. I may need to write a book like this. He wrote a book, and the title of his book was The Retractions. Isn't that a great title for a book? The Retractions. Now, these guys were prolific authors, and they may have written this much material, okay? But near the end of his life, he said, I need to correct the record on a few issues. And he wrote another, just one volume called The Retractions. Positions that I've held that now I realize are incorrect, and I want to set the record straight so that people don't get my teaching and run with it falsely. Here's what Augustine wrote in the retractions. We have also shown that these words are better understood of a spiritual man already living under grace, even though the body of the flesh is not yet spiritual, but it will be at the resurrection of the dead. Let me put it in plain English. This is Augustine's way of saying, I used to think that Romans chapter 7 was a description of Paul before he was saved. That means lost. But now, having lived my Christian life, I understand the struggle against sin. It never goes away till you get a resurrected body. And he said, now it's clear to me, having lived my whole life, that I need to retract my view on that. And I understand that Paul is actually describing a born-again, fully mature, awesome Christian life. He's a Christian apostle, one of the best Christians to ever live. And he keeps saying, I'm struggling with sin as long as I'm in this fleshly body. Augustine says, he's right. I now understand what Paul meant. So, I say that to you again this morning. To find some common ground with the Apostle Paul. When you read about Paul, you think, well, he's this Christian way beyond where I am because I struggle with sin. Listen, even though a saved person lives in a constant struggle with sin, it doesn't mean you're a second-class Christian. You're normal, is what I'm trying to say. You're normal. If you find yourself struggling against thoughts and actions and attitudes that you know are sinful, and you say, what is wrong with me? How am I broken as a follower of Christ? No, you're normal. You're in a body of flesh that wants to do what the flesh wants to do, and you have a spiritual man living inside of there, and those two natures are duking it out night and day. That's the bottom line. And uh, the Holy Spirit's going to help you. We'll see that in chapter number 8. But you're living a normal Christian life. Now, when we got to Romans chapter 8, where we ended last week, the point of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is that we are completely free from the accusation of sin and the penalty, the execution of the sentence against sin. And while the law, which has been the topic since chapter 5, while the law was powerless to save you, to create righteousness in you, let me say it a a simple way. Rules can keep you out of trouble a little bit, 
But rules cannot create righteousness within you. If I give you a list of rules to keep, you'll never be able to keep it. But if you keep it as best you can, it'll never generate righteousness in you. That's the whole problem here. And so what we saw was the law was powerless to create righteousness in us. And that's what God demanded for that relationship. We further understand now, chapter 6 and 7, that the law not only could not save us, it can't sanctify us. It, It can't help us live a better Christian life. It can't bring us to further holiness. It can't help us live a life. All the law does is it just creates bigger and bigger hypocrites. That's all it does. And so Paul says it's not bad now. It's just a mirror showing you what's broken in your own life. So while the law couldn't bring to pass what we need to bring to pass in our life, our salvation, justification, and our sanctification, the Holy Spirit, in fact, is able to do both. He is able to save us and he is able to sanctify us and bring bring us into a holy life before God. So here's chapter number 8. You won't be shocked to learn that chapter number 8 talks about the Holy Spirit. The word Spirit's mentioned 21 times in chapter number 8. If you want to write that in your margin, about 21 times the word Spirit just in chapter 8 alone. So you can get that part of the topic is about the the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. So at the top of chapter 8, why don't you just write the working of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Now, before I proceed through chapter number eight, let me also do a little bit of housekeeping right here. If you have a KJV or an NKJV version of the Bible this morning, you'll notice that Romans 8 1 is longer in a KJV or NKJV than it is in NIV, New American Standard, or ESV. And the reason is all of the older manuscripts, older manuscripts being NIV, New American Standard, and ESV, the ones that are based on the older manuscripts do not contain the words who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Can you guys put Romans 8, 1 up here for us? Just see if you can find that and throw it up so everybody can see. Or, or the graph is good. Here we go. Uh, <clears throat> God's words, paraphrase. So those who are believers in Christ Jesus can no longer be condemned. ESV, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This was our sermon last week. Therefore, there is no condemnation, same as ESV, in Christ Jesus. In KJV, follows the KJV. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In all the older manuscripts, that last phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is not there in the old manuscripts. Now, let me tell you why it's not there. It's actually a copyist error. Look down to verse number 4 in your Bible. If you have NKJ or or KJV, the older manuscripts do not have it. And somewhere along the way, a guy who was copying the manuscripts said, oh my gosh, I'm only on chapter 8. There's 16 chapters. I'm getting tired. I need a cup of espresso. And he went and got a cappuccino or something, and he came back and sat down, and he copied the last phrase of verse number 4 onto verse number 1. Do you see it if you have an NKJV or, or KJV? Let me read what Dr. Boyce wrote on this one issue, and I'll move on. Those who use the authorized or King James text will notice the addition of the words, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, following the words of Christ Jesus in verse 1. This is certainly an error. And it's worth pointing out because if the clause is retained, it suggests exactly the opposite of what the text actually is teaching. Now let me pause right there. Do you remember what the text is teaching coming out of 7 and into 8? There's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ. You are justified by the gospel. Put your faith in Christ and you are in Christ, not of works. It has nothing to do with keeping the rules. The whole run in two or three chapters have been a refutation of the law and salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel, an articulation of the gospel. The gospel taught you to put your faith in Christ and you were justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ to your account. And you stand before God, not in your own works, but in the righteousness of Christ that's been credited to your account. Not of works, amen, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. If you put that clause on the end of verse 1, suddenly you made this read exactly the opposite. Boyce goes on. What I'm saying is these words do not belong on this verse. 
If they did, our escape from condemnation would last only as long as our next faltering step or sin. Then we would be back under condemnation again. Thank God salvation is not like that. Salvation is from God. It is by God. And what this says is that there is no condemnation for those who have been joined to Christ Jesus by God the Father through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, period. Amen? Because now if I say, oh, and if you walk in the Spirit and you don't commit any sins, you just negated everything I just said. I'll let you wrestle with that one for a while. Some of you aren't convinced. Next to chapter 8, verse 2, write this statement. Why no condemnation? Why no condemnation? I'm reading Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, there are two laws mentioned in this verse. Two laws mentioned. You may want to underline them. The law of the Spirit of life... That's law number one, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Next to the phrase, the law of the spirit of life, write the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is what put you in Christ and gave you life in the Holy Spirit. Life in Christ, where the spirit's in you and you're in Christ. So the law of the spirit of life, that's the gospel, The law of sin and death, next to that, write the words law of Moses. That's the rules, okay, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. There's two different laws being contrasted right here. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is the gospel. It is the gospel going forth. And and, and it's freed us from the law. It's freed us from the curse, chapters 6 and 7 again. And because of our justification through the gospel, not of our works, not of our keeping the rules, but our justification through the gospel, because of that, believers experience the freedom of a new life in the spirit. That's what Paul's discussing. Next to verse number 3, I want you to write this. How did our freedom come about? So we have this freedom in the spirit now. How? How did that happen for you? And how did that happen for me? Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, here's what I want you to grab. God has done what the law couldn't do. God did something that the law could not do. We're going to talk about that in a minute. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, the big question you want to be asking yourself is what did God do? God did something, the verse says. What did God do? I want to give you five things very quickly that God did. Question and answer style. Here are the five questions that answer what God did. So first of all, what did God do? What was it that God did that Romans 8.3 is talking about? The answer is God sent his son. Probably the most known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I mean, this is what God did. He gave his son All right, the next question is, in what state did God send his son? Obviously, the son of God is God. He came down from heaven. In what state did God send his son here to us? Well, he sent him in the likeness of sinful human flesh. Now, be careful with the wording here. He didn't send him as a sinner, but he sent him in the likeness of sinful human flesh. Jesus may have looked like any other man. Jesus may have looked like every other man, but he was in fact without sin and being without sin, that made him very, very different than every other man. Does that make sense? All this struggle I'm talking about with my own sin, he was sinless. He was sin in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was very different than the rest of us. Question three, why did God send his son? Why? Why would God do this? Why did God send his son? Well, he sent him to be a sin offering. Uh, Isaiah 53 would be a great cross-reference to put right there in your journal. You go read that sometime. And it talks about how God allowed Jesus to suffer and to, to be bruised and to suffer to fulfill this righteous act that he was coming to justify us. So why did God send his son? He sent him to be a sin offering. If Jesus had been sinful... He would have been useless as a sin offering. 
Remember, now you're flashing back to the Old Testament with the lambs and all of this, and it had to be spotless and it had to be perfect. Listen, as, if Jesus had been a sinner, he could not have been an offering for our sin. He would have been useless as an offering, would not have been accepted by God. But because he was sinless, his sinlessness guaranteed his acceptance before God as our substitute, as our sacrifice for sin. Fourthly, what was God's purpose in that? Well, why would God allow him to come and be a sin offering? Well, his purpose was to condemn sin in sinful men. Now, let me go back really where I was with Romans 8.1 last week. Condemn in the English doesn't convey what it does in the Greek. In the Greek, it means the sentencing, the trial, the sentence found guilty and includes the execution. So let condemn here have its full meaning. It doesn't just refer to Jesus was accused on our behalf. No, it's much more than that. It means that the sentence of our sin was executed upon Jesus Christ. He was condemned on our behalf. Let it have the full weight of the meaning. Condemn means the fall of the blade. It's the sting of the whip. It's the burn of the rope. It's the torture of the cross. That was put upon Jesus Christ. He's saying that God poured out the execution that should have come against you and I because of our sin. But instead of pouring it out on us, God poured it out on his own son as our representative. He's guaranteed to be accepted because he's sinless. So here's the fifth question. What was God's ultimate purpose in doing that? Why would God punish his son for you and I? Why would he do that? The answer, that the righteous demands of the law might be fulfilled. God is holy and the righteous demands of the law must be fulfilled. And Jesus Christ stepped in so that God would be holy and you could be forgiven and both could be true. Sinners could be justified before God through Jesus Christ. The demands of the holy law have now been satisfied and we are free from any condemnation, any punishment, anything. The Bible calls Satan the accuser. Any accusation Satan wants to throw against us and any punishment that goes with that accusation has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he's removed the condemnation uh, uh, and we stand before God now. In the righteousness of his own son. We're in a new status now. And that status is what Paul is about to start talking about. We're in the spirit. You're going to start seeing this phrase. We live in the spirit. We walk in the spirit. These, we are after the spirit. It means we live in holiness now before God. Verse 4. Let's read it. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now... That the righteous demands, requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that means that Christ's obedience makes up for your lack of obedience. You couldn't keep the law. And maybe you could keep one part of it, but you couldn't keep all of it. And the problem is the law demands all of it. The law demands perfection. It, it demands you keep it in totality. The Bible says if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of all of the law. So what he's saying is Christ in full obedience came down here and he lived a holy life before God and his obedience is credited to us and makes up for your lack of obedience. Now, let, let me just say this as a footnote. Of course, that doesn't mean you ought to give up on holy living. It doesn't mean that you just say, well, I can just live lawlessly and recklessly. We've already dealt with that in Romans. It says, no, you can't. And you shouldn't sin more to make God look better. That's, that's a faulty logic as well. Paul's already dealt with all of these things. It just simply means you can't keep the law perfectly. And perfection is all the law demands. And so Christ kept it perfectly. So next to verse number 5. Now write this. The contrast between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. Now this, if you've been in church uh, really any, any time at all, some years, you've heard this language. Uh, fleshly or living after the flesh or the converse, living after the Spirit or living a Spirit-filled life. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not speaking of that soft material that's covering your bones. He's not speaking of the soft material that's covering your skeletal bones. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's talking about a way of living, a way of thinking that characterizes the sinful world. That's what the flesh means. So don't think about your skin and your muscles. He's saying it's a way of thinking, it's a way of living that follows the world's pattern. That's what he's saying when he says flesh. When Paul talks about following the spirit, when he says spirit, he's not talking about some ethereal, non-material, mystical aspect of your life. Life in the spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. Life in the spirit means that you are living uh, a way that is characterized by goodness and holiness and in consideration for the family of God to which you belong. Living up to your name. Living as a child of God. Following the leading of the Spirit in your life. Now Paul's point is simply this. There are two choices and not three. That's all he talks about. Life after the flesh, life after the Spirit. You may say, well I want a third option. There is no third option. There is no third option. There's no such thing as I want to live in the flesh and be born again. And have peace with God and have all the blessings of God in my life. You're either following the spirit or you're following the flesh. Two different ideologies about how you're going to live your life. Which is it basically is what Paul's saying. You, you need to make a choice on this issue. Those who are living after the flesh are those who just keep thinking constantly about their own self all the time. My desires, my will, I want to do this, I want to do that. It's all about me, it's all about me. It's, it's a very selfish, self-centered way of living. Living after the flesh is living wholly self-centered. Now, now that I say that, if you listen to the way the world thinks this week, watch what the world says, watch the way the world thinks, listen to the world for a moment, you'll understand they're not concerned about following the spirit (laughs) they're not concerned about the things of God it's just about me it's about how I get ahead how I satisfy my desires how I live live my life it's just me 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 it's a very self-centered way of thinking and Paul's observation is that such people who are constantly focused on the desires of this world are actually that of this world and not of the spirit of God Now, that'll make you do some self-reflection, won't it? Make you do some analysis this morning to see where you stand with God. Then Paul immediately sets forth the other kind of person, the person who's concerned about the things of the Spirit, a person who's living according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in their life, and that person is concerned about the things of the Spirit. Now, verses 6 to 8 explain why that matters. So, next to verse 6 and 8, say, why does it matter? Here we go. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Talk to me. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That makes my choice a little easier this morning. (laughs) You follow the world's scheme. You know where this ends? The wages of sin is... You get born again and follow the leading of God's spirit in your life. And you know where it leads to? Life and peace. Life and peace. Listen, choose eternal life and peace with God this morning is my plea to you. Don't choose a self-centered life that leads to nothing but emptiness and destruction. Choose Christ this morning and follow a relationship with God and the leading of the Spirit and understand what real living is all about. Understand what living in peace is all about. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, that's a strong statement to say about someone that their minds are hostile to God. Their minds are at war with God. And they can't submit to God. They can't follow God because they hate all that God stands for. Paul's point basically is this is a description of fleshly people. They're spiritually dead and their journey is going to terminate in an eternal death. That's where this is leading. A self-centered life can only see life for the world's point of view. On the other hand, the spirit-centered life 
sees life through the lenses of faith, through the lenses of the gospel, through the lenses of being born again, through being justified and made righteous before God. We see life through the lenses of being part of the family of God. So now Paul, writing to the Roman Christians, these European Christians, Paul says, and I know, he's addressing the Romans now, I know you walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. So I'm addressing American Christians now, not European Christians. And I want to say to you American Christians, let me encourage you, not discourage you. As I stand before you, I know that I stand before a body of people who are not following the flesh, but they are indeed following the Holy Spirit in their lives. Let me read to you these verses. You, however, are not in the flesh. Apply these to yourself. You're not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And what he's saying is because the Holy Spirit dwells in your bodies, now you have a very spiritual obligation before God. So right there next to verse number 12, just write a spiritual obligation. And that's what he's going to talk about. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have a spiritual obligation to God. Let me read it for you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We owe a debt. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. I want to pause right here and digress a moment. I remember having several conversations with Christian people who said, I just, you know, whenever I start drifting towards sin, my conscience really convicts me. And I feel really badly. And I don't understand these powerful feelings I get when I'm doing wrong. Let me describe it for you. It's not just your conscience. It's the sanctified Holy Spirit living in you. It's almost like having a double conscience. You have a conscience, period. But then the Holy Spirit moves into your life. And he's inside of you. And when you drift towards sin, he's pulling the reins back he's whispering into you this is not the place for you you don't belong here you should be doing this i know they're doing it but this is not for you this is not your place no don't respond like this no respond the opposite of what you're feeling right now you know what you want to say bobby don't say it instead say this that's the holy spirit at work in our lives verse 14 let me read it again for all who are led by the spirit do you ever feel those feelings you ever feel the holy spirit Listen, according to verse 14, that's one of the great proofs that you're born again. That's one of the great proofs that you're a child of God. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit's inside of you living as a constant testimony that you belong to God. 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Abba, Papa, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified together. Now the Bible knows of no Christian life that doesn't involve a little suffering. So I just want to put that out there again. You just put a little star there and we can elaborate on that more another time. Let me get to the real teaching here because we're united with Christ We have a spiritual obligation to live a certain way. That's what he's saying. Ladies and gentlemen, those of you who are born again have an obligation to crucify the sin that constantly is rising up in your life. Nail that to the cross. Constantly say no to sin. Now it's a struggle. That's what chapter 7 described. But we have a spiritual obligation because, because, because we are in Christ. And because, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We're living before God not in desperation to please God. And we're not living in fear because the Holy Spirit is living in us. And He's constantly, throughout this struggle against sin, the Holy Spirit is constantly helping you, constantly encouraging you, constantly reminding you that you are precious 
to God, you are loved by God, and you are adopted sons and daughters of God. That's his ministry in your life. The phrase Abba, Papa, that little word, Papa, Abba, Father, that's a very familiar term. That is not father, grandfather, this is pops. What do your grandkids call you? (laughs) What was that? Granddaddy? Papa? Pop? It's familiarity. They don't come into you all buttoned up. Father, a word please in the study. No, they run and jump in your lap and kiss you and say, Papa, Daddy, you know what I'm saying? It's very familiar. Do you understand what Paul is suggesting here in your Bible? What an extraordinary privilege that you and I have to be able to run up to the throne of God 24-7, 365, and extend our arms and jump up into the lap of Almighty God and throw our arms around his neck and say, Papa, I need you. Papa, I love you. Papa, I'm struggling right now. Papa, I need your presence. Papa, I need some guidance. Papa, I need some love. Papa, I need some kisses right now. Papa, I need some money right now. Papa, I need some health right now. What an extraordinary privilege you and I have. We are living out the reality that we are united to Christ and the Holy Spirit's living in us. We're living out the reality that we've been moved from the orphanage into our adoptive home because the gospel has made our justification a reality and our justification has made our union with Christ a established fact. God says, now I've given you a new relationship with God as your father. Papa. Not grandfather. Not formal. Informal. Very familiar. Very loving. Papa. Because we're the adoptive children of Almighty God, you understand why I say you have a spiritual obligation? You're his grandkids. You're his kids. And you call him Papa. And you have an obligation to live a certain way in light of who you are. Now, I'm about out of time, so let me just see if I can start landing now. There's a parenthetical statement, sort of, from 18 to 28. So if you just want to make a parenthesis around verse 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and I'll start reading in 28, but that's kind of just a, a, a sidebar. talks a lot about suffering and, and, and what the Christian life is really like, but let me pick it up in verse number 28. This is called the golden chain of redemption. It's called the golden chain because the words are like links. You'll see how one link takes up the other link, takes up the other link, takes up the other link. Here is what the theologians call the golden chain of redemption. Verse 28. And we know that for this purpose, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 29, here it comes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that... He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So knowing this. Now here Paul's starting to draw a conclusion. Knowing this. Romans 8, 1. Knowing there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Knowing that God did something that the law could not do by sending his own son. Knowing that we will struggle against sin, but we will ultimately be victorious. Knowing that we will face suffering in this life, verses 17 to 28. But God has already sent the Holy Spirit to help us overcome in suffering. Knowing that we are forever bound to God by our justification through the gospel. Knowing all of this, what should our response be? Paul thinks you should draw a conclusion here. I don't know whether you think that, but Paul thinks you should. Knowing all of this, what is our conclusion? Let me read it, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Draw a conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. Knowing what you know now, what is your conclusion? He's going to ask a question. If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? In other words, he gave you the most valuable thing heaven had to offer. You don't think he'd give you the little things of life as well? He already gave you the most valuable thing in the universe in giving his own son. You don't think he'd give you a job? Seriously? Or a car? Or a spouse? Or a friend? Or encouragement? Or love? Or grace? Or help? He'll give you everything you need because he's already given you his son. Verse 33, who shall bring anything, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us we don't serve a dead savior we serve a very living savior who shall separate us make a little star at verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, the context of that verse, which you're very familiar with, we're more than conquerors. Listen, we're more than conquerors in light of what I've explained to you because we're in union with Christ because of the gospel and the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. That's why we are more than conquerors. You say, well, I'm never going to face persecution or trouble now that I'm saved. No, that's not true. You're going to face a lot of things now that you're saved. But here's the beauty. You have the Holy Spirit to help you. You'll never face them alone. See, when we comprehend the love of God that was poured out on us through Jesus Christ, you can trample adversity under your feet and you can live in victory because we know we are objects of the boundless love of Almighty God. I can deal with a whole lot of junk if I know someone loves me. My marriage can sustain a whole lot of fiery darts if I know my wife loves me. Are you with me? My kids can go through a whole lot of junk in life and they know that dad and mom's always going to love them. They can come home and be loved on by us no matter what the world dishes to them. You as a young person know you can always go to mom and dad and be loved. You see that constant love in your life is transformative. Now I'm taking it up to a whole other level and saying that's the way God's love is for you as a father for his children. No matter what you face, no matter, listen, go through cancer, okay? God's going to be with you every step of the way until we hit remission and then onward. That's, that's the fact of the matter. So you've been through a trial, you lost your, listen, God's going to be with you every step of the way. Because you are the object of his boundless love. So in 35, Paul asked the last question who shall separate us from the love of God and here's the answer here's the answer verse 38 for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation nothing let me say it another way nothing in the whole universe nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's how the chapter started. There's no condemnation to you who are in Christ because the penalty's already been paid. There's no more penalty left. Here's how the chapter ends. You, you know what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. You are completely secure in Jesus Christ. Now I'm asking you this morning, draw a conclusion. Knowing what you know, how should this affect our lives this week? Some of that worry you've been wrestling with, you need to give that over to the Lord this morning because he's got you. Listen, some of you who are saying, it doesn't matter how I live. Yeah, it matters. You're a child of Almighty God and the Holy Spirit goes with you everywhere you go yes it matters maybe this is a moment this morning where you could just rededicate your life to to trying to pursue holiness not in order to get saved but because you already are saved now listen it's a struggle paul says amen to that chapter seven it's a struggle there are going to be some ups and downs but here's what you need to know this morning you belong because of christ to a family 
You've been adopted and you are the object of the boundless love of God and nothing in this universe can separate you from the love of God. How should that affect your life this week? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let, let, let's not leave the house of God without making a decision. I mean, you, 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 Paul said draw a conclusion. What's our clue? What should we say then? Let me just put this back to you in this moment this morning. What should you say then? What should you say to God? Listen, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Have you ever said hello to him? <laughs> Have you ever acknowledged that he's in you? What should you say to him this morning? Seeing he's there with you, trying to help you 24-7 live as a child of God. Draw a conclusion this morning. What is God saying to you because of Romans chapter 8? Christians, uh, the altars are yours right now. If you need to pray, if you need to rededicate, if you need to be a member of the church, I'm going to ask you to move very quickly right now. Just slip out of your seat and come do whatever you need to do. I'm speaking to those who've come in today and I'm talking about living after the flesh and following the Spirit and, and maybe for the first time in your life your eyes were opened that it's all about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you realize this morning that you've never done that you've never put your faith in the gospel in Jesus Christ to save you well today's the day today's the day if you're ready to receive Christ as your Savior, pray with me right now. I'll help you with the prayer. Cry out to God in your own words, but I'll give you a little outline here to follow. You ready? Pray like this. Dear God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I want to say just what you said. I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know, Jesus Christ, that you are that Savior that I need, the only one who could save And I believe what I've heard this morning, that God sent you to this earth in the likeness of sinful flesh. But you were sinless, and you died on the cross as my substitute. And you were buried, and you rose again, and I believe this. And this morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Wash me, cleanse me. Lord, I put my faith and my trust completely in you today. And I ask you to come into my life and be the Lord and Savior of my life from now and for all of eternity. Thank you for putting me in Christ and filling me now with your Holy Spirit. Lord, now help me to walk worthy of someone who bears the name of Christ. Help me to live worthy as an adoptive child of Almighty God this morning. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name.